As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. On this, the fourth Wednesday of Great and Holy Lent 2023. So last week, and well, the week before, we've been slowly going through the first three chapters of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Last week, we finished chapter two, where we heard of the birth of Christ, and now we're going to begin, well, the very beginning of the ministry of Christ in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is also a very unique chapter in terms of the Gospels because it has the most significant, in terms of time span, uh, emphasis on the ministry of St. John the Baptist that you will see in all three accounts. If we remember all the way back to 17 weeks ago when we started the Gospel according to St. Mark, the account of John the Baptist is very brief. I believe it's only a couple of verses long. And what we're going to see here in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in which we already saw in the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, is that Luke has a large emphasis placed on John the Baptist. He gives us his backstory. He tees up his role as being the forerunner. And here in the third chapter, we're going to see what that ministry looks like and how that ministry is played out. So with all of that out of the way, let's begin chapter 3 of the Gospel according to St. Luke. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Licentius, tetrarchs of Albulini, and the high priest, uh, priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the regions about the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what we see here is... Luke is beginning a new section of the gospel. And we know this by the names that he just listed. Because by listing the names of the rulers of that day, both political and religious, he's dating the text. We need to remember that our concepts of BC or BCE and AD or Common Era 
are not concepts that were held in that day. Because Anno Domini, AD, the year in the year of our Lord, well, this is currently the year of the Lord. So that that term, that frame, if you will, of how to keep track of time did not exist. So the way that St. Luke is framing the time frame is by identifying who the rulers of that day was were. And here in verse 2, towards the end, after the chief priests have been proclaimed, we hear that the voice of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This is a reintroduction of John, because in chapter 1, again, we already met John. We heard of his birth. And at the very end of chapter 1, we hear that John went into the wilderness until the day of his manifestation. This is the day of his manifestation that we see here. This is when John is called to begin his ministry in the wilderness. And I think it's important quickly to address, well, why is John in the wilderness here? Well, if we pay close attention to the gospel according to St. Luke, which does not have an account of John's beheading in it, that's another unique aspect of the gospel account, we hear of a Zechariah who is killed between the sanctuary and the altar. This Zechariah, I believe this is in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, is the father of St. John. And for further proof of that, you can look to the Gospel according to St. Matthew, where his father's name is listed. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, he's called. And if you go through the entire Old Testament, you'll find there's no Zechariah who is the son of Berechiah. And if we look at the context of what's happening in that eighth chapter, we'll also know that Christ is talking about the righteous blood that had been shed by the people of Israel. And the first name that he lists is Abel, and the last name that he lists is Zechariah. So, if it was somebody from the Old Testament, the Zechariah who's killed between the altar and the sanctuary, well, why would Jesus list somebody who was the first man to die, Abel, when he was slain by his brother Cain, and then chronologically pick somebody in the middle and never have a fulfillment, never have somebody here in the present day? So that's kind of the framework that he's laying out to us, that we'll see much later when we get to the 8th chapter. But it's important for us to realize that this quick identification of Zechariah's death points us back to why John is in the wilderness. And this is another area where the Gospel according to St. Luke corroborates statements that are made within the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Because although Matthew is more explicit and Luke is more subtle, we see that both Gospels are recognizing the fact that there was something that pushed John into the wilderness when he was an infant. And when we look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew, we find out that what that was was Herod, the father of the current Herod that we see here, out of fear of the birth of the Christ, had all of the newborn children slaughtered. And it is that slaughter that Elizabeth is fleeing with John, It is that same genocide in the sense that Zechariah is killed during. And so it's for that reason 
that St. John is pushed into the wilderness. But there's another aspect, because if we go all the way back to the first chapter, where Zechariah has his prophecy of all of the things that John is going to do, and all of and the angel Gabriel before has a prophecy of what John is going to have to do in preparation, as he's not going to drink strong drink, he's going to live to certain disciplines, and he's going to go into the desert. Well, we see that the reason, another reason, why John is in the wilderness, besides this reality of the genocide of newborn children, is that John had to go through this extreme ascetical practice. For the role that he's going to play, preparing the way of the Lord, as we're going to see, as the words of Isaiah the prophet will continue to expound for us, John had to do intense work on himself. Also, within our tradition, we know that John is raised by angels, is administered to by angels in the wilderness. So he's set aside in a very similar way that the Theotokos was also set aside. And yet, in the preparatory work that they both do, in anticipation for the coming of the Lord, in anticipation for the ministry that they are going to soon be called to engage in, we see when the time is right, when the time of them being called comes about, they are willing to heed the voice of God. And that's why we hear that the word of God comes as John, the son of Zechariah, while he's in the wilderness. And in verse 3 we see, And he went out into all the region about the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here I think it's important to also identify well, what is this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's different than our concept of baptism. Because as we're going to see much later when we get to the Acts of the Apostles when the Holy Spirit is sent, and as we're also going to see when people declare that John is the Christ, these are two distinct baptisms. In the book of Acts, we're going to see that those who were baptized by John are again baptized into Christ. And the difference that we have here is the baptism, the ritual washing, that ritual of death and rebirth that John is offering is a tool that God has given humanity in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So this ritual washing is the way for all of the people who are in the region of Judea who are waiting for the coming Messiah to prepare themselves for who is to come. And this is going to make more sense as we move forward, but I just think it's important that we highlight it now so that way we have a better frame of reference when we hear baptism. Baptism, for John's context, is not the same baptism that we think of in our life. Because when we are baptized as Christians, we are also chrismated, so we're anointed, we're given this messianic seal in Christ, and we're also commune for the first time. Those three sacraments are inseparable because those three sacraments are the way that we participate in a life in Christ. When we're baptized, we die to this age, and we are reborn within the Messianic age. So we die to this world and are reborn in Christ. When we are chrismated, we have that spirit sealed in us. We have this confirmation of kingly or queenly duty that we are going to set out and accomplish as Christians, regardless of our age or where we are when that's initially given to us. 
And then the way that we continue to rejuvenate our life in Christ is by communing in his body, by literally taking in Christ within us. That's why you can't separate these three. But that is different than the baptism that John is offering. Because the baptism of John, again, is preparatory. It's getting us ready for what is to come when we see Jesus begin his ministry at the very end of this chapter. So moving on to verse 4. As is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So, here we are with a very familiar saying here, make his path straight. Uh, the reason why I named this Bible study after this line from the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah is because I think it highlights the role of all Christians, but in particular our patron saint, St. John the Baptist. In the ministry of St. John, we see first here in the fourth verse of chapter 3 that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness who is preparing the way of the Lord. Again, we need to remember he spent his whole life in the wilderness. He spent his whole life in eager anticipation of the prophecy that was made of him when he was a baby. And that prophecy isn't something that he was just waiting about to have fulfilled. Rather, it came about so that way St. John could carry his cross, could carry out his ministry, and fulfill his role as a servant of the Lord, preparing the way for the Messiah who was to come, literally straightening the path, giving people clarity, so that way they could see where they too are called to go to have this life in Christ. If we go to verse 5, we see that St. Luke will use, I believe, verses 4 and 5 from Isaiah chapter 30, where the other Gospels will only use this verse 3, which is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, makes path straight. So St. Luke continues by using the next two verses from this passage in Isaiah. And he says that every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be wrought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. This again points back to the social message of St. Luke's Gospel. When we hear that every valley shall be filled, the way that we can think about it is the lowly, those who are in a low place, shall be brought up, they shall be elevated. And immediately after that, we hear every mountain and hill shall be brought low. So those who are elevated in this world are called to be on the same plane as those who are low. And it's through this preparation, it's through this repentance and reorientation that this will be made possible. It's the same thing when we hear the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. 
the role of John in preparing the way for the Lord is literally fostering the conditions for the individuals who are called to live a life in him to be able to participate down this path, to be able to walk down this path. If you want to think practically about the role of a herald, which St. John is within the time of Christ, well, the role of a herald was to go before the king and bring his evangelion, to bring his gospel, his announcement of some major victory to the people. So that way the people could then prepare their literal streets to be able to take the parade that was going to come, the victory parade from this battle. John is doing the same thing. He's preparing the people of God to receive their messianic king, to receive the Christ. And that's why we have these passages from Isaiah, not only because we can intellectualize this and psychologize this and realize that, okay, when Isaiah is talking about valleys being filled and mountains and hills being brought low, he's talking about individuals. He's talking about moving human beings to an equal status. But when we hear that he shall make the crooked path straight and the rough ways made smooth, we can again look at this internally. Because the preparation that St. John is doing, the preparation that St. John is offering to the people is internal as well as external. And we have these examples of historically what a herald would be doing to help frame this in our mind. Because what St. John is saying isn't to people, okay, literally we need to fix the roads because they're in the wilderness. There aren't any roads. That wouldn't make sense. But what he's telling them is dig deep. What he's telling them is look internally. Be washed away of your sin because this is the option that God has given to you to be able to do so. And in his role as Baptist, St. John will then carry that out. And we see in the sixth verse that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So if these conditions are met, this is the process by which the people before Christ were called to him. This is the process by which St. John was preparing the way for the Lord and making his path straight. And the end result is that all flesh, all humanity, all of us sitting here today, will see the salvation of God. So moving on to verse 7. He said, therefore, to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits that befit repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, He who has two tunics, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, 
Collect no more than is appointed to you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Rob no one by violence or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. So here we see St. John immediately turns to all of the people who are coming out to him and refers to them as a brood of vipers. Not a very compassionate on its surface way of preaching. Imagine having your priest getting up on the pulpit and referring to you as a brood of vipers. That probably wouldn't be taken well. <laughs> and yet we need to dig deeper as to what St. John is really saying here in the statement. First of all, for those of you familiar with the gospel according to St. Matthew, you'll know that the statement of brood of vipers in that account is not directed at the multitude. It's directed at the scribes and the Pharisees. So we need to ask ourselves the question now, of, well, why is St. John making this reference to the people who are coming out to be baptized? Clearly, they have some inkling that he's preaching truth. Clearly, they are trying to be participants in this repentance that he's offering. And yet he tells them, you're a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Well, the reason why he's saying this is because it's going to be these same people who are preparing themselves for the Christ, who at the end of the gospel will be screaming, crucify him. Maybe these people, some of them, will be followers of Christ who run away before that point. But the reality still is that those who are among those being baptized by St. John the Baptist are in this balancing act, if you will. They are called towards this life in Christ. They genuinely desire to live it and yet, the warning that we have is that when calamity afflicts them, they, like we all too often do, may fall away from that call. It's for this reason in verse 8 we see St. Saint, Saint John <clears throat> rather, tell them that they need to bear fruit that befits repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For if I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So when we see that they need the bare fruit that befits repentance, well, what St. John is telling us is that they don't only have to say that they want to be saved. They don't only have to say that they want to be baptized and participate in that washing away. But they have to live it. It's one thing to try to intellectualize concepts. It's another thing to speak about concepts to people. But it's a completely different thing to actually put skin in the game, in a sense. To actually go and do the things that you're saying. Because our actions speak much louder than our words. That's why we have a liturgical faith, where we actively participate in the liturgy. There are various smells and sights and things that all come together that we engage in. All of the senses are being used at once because we're called towards this participatory reality of a life in Christ rather 
than just to have an intellectual relationship to Christ. It's for this reason that St. John is telling them that they need to bear fruits that befit repentance. You can't just have the pride of saying, well, Abraham is our father. Look at our lineage. Because lineage means nothing, as St. John is telling us. If we are not bearing the fruits, if we are not doing the work worthy of that covenant, worthy of making ourselves members of that family, if we look at the covenant between God and Abraham that makes the children of Abraham children of God, well, that covenant requires those children to hold up their end of the bargain, to act in a way that is befitting of children of God. And this is why, again, we see the number one critique within Chronicles and Kingdoms of all of the ennoble kings, all the bad kings, is that they're not doing the things that were befitting of their ministry. They're not taking care of the widows and the orphans. This is what you'll constantly hear from all of the prophets that come to them. And even though Israel doesn't have a king at this point, St. John here is making that same prophetic statement to the people. They can't just take for granted their birthright. They need to hold up their end of the bargain with God. Because God will give the status of children to whomever he wills. That's how we sitting here today are also acknowledged as children of God. It's not because of our ethnicity. It's because of this call towards all humanity and us holding up our end of the bargain, which is service, something that Christ himself came into the world to do. So it's in this way that we too become children of God. And we see here in verse 9, Even now the axe is laying at the root of the trees. For every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is a warning again from John, that you are the tree. You are called to do these good works. And yet the end of this age is coming. The Messianic age is right around the corner. And being a prophetic speaker as John was, he tells them to be prepared. Because when Christ comes, our sins are no longer to be hidden. When the ideal human being is brought into the world who is fully God and fully man, well, he brings with him, and being an ideal in himself, a revelation of truth. And the reason for this is because if we think about conceptually what an ideal is, it's a judgment. It is our acknowledgement of some truth that is beyond us. So if we refer to Jesus as the ideal human, the perfect human, then when we're confronted with his perfection, with his divinity, our experience of that, when we compare Christ to our sin is that of judgment. This is why sin is no longer hidden in the light of Christ, because it literally cannot be. 
for he is that light that shines into the darkness that the darkness cannot even comprehend, as we hear within the Gospel according to St. John. So this is why St. John, the Baptist, that is, is using this apocalyptic language of us being trees that are going to be cut down and cast into the fire. It's not saying, it's not him saying that the end is nigh and we are all going to be thrown into eternal hellfire. Rather, he's telling us that our experience of what is to come, the joy that is to come, if we are not preparing ourselves, if we are not making this path straight in our life, will not be pleasant. And yet, if we are preparing ourselves, if we are setting out every single day, every single minute, every single second during that day to ally ourselves with Christ, well then, we will be able to experience his light, the reality of him as an eternal joy. And yet, if we shirk off that responsibility, if we live a total life in sin and never repent, then how are we going to experience that light when there's no longer a barrier between us and it? This is what St. John is preparing us for. And so in verse 10, we see St. John respond to the multitudes because the multitudes ask him, what shall we do? They're perplexed. They're confused. Okay, great. You were offering us this repentance, and now you're telling us that we're rotten trees and the axe is at the root of us. Like, what, what's going on here? So he answers them, He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. So this preparation is going to take more than them just having their sins washed away. They need to live a life that is commensurate with the call that they have. So if Christ came to serve rather than to be served, we're called to do the same. So he says, he who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. So we can look at this as him who has excess, the person who has excess. Well, great, that coat that's sitting in your closet and just gathering dust, well, what are you doing with it? You don't need it. Do you? Because it's sitting there. It doesn't serve a purpose for you anymore. So you may as well go and give it to somebody who doesn't have that basic necessity. And it's basic necessities that he's identifying here because what he speaks about next is food. Do likewise. So this is the call of Christians. We are called to bear one another's burdens, as St. Paul tells us. But... It doesn't have to be as extreme as we think about sometimes. It doesn't have to be us taking in someone who's homeless or you know, radically coming along and helping somebody in their life. The little things that we can do make a big difference. And this is why St. John tells the people, the multitude, if you have two coats, great. Share one with someone who has none. If you have an excess of food, Share that excess with people who have none. And likewise, he says to the tax collectors in verse 12, well, they ask him, teacher, what shall we do? And he says to them, collect no more than is, appropriate, than is appointed to you. This seems very self-evident. It's like, okay, great. Yeah, if you're a tax collector, your role is to collect taxes. So yeah, don't steal from people. That's bad. 
but we need to understand the historical context here. St. John is speaking to Jewish conscripts, people who are of the people of Israel, who are now enlisted by the Romans to collect. This is their civil duty. They're not being paid for this. So when they're going around and collecting money from people, the salary that they're receiving is the excess that they're stealing from their brothers and sisters. So what St. John is basically telling them to do is, in not stealing from your brothers and sisters, you're basically throwing away what you have as a livelihood if you are a tax collector. But he's telling them, listen, the evil that you are doing by stealing from your fellow children of Israel is so much greater than the hardship that you will have to experience if you no longer do that. And we see the same thing for the soldiers. Because when they ask him, what shall we do? And St. John replies, rob no one by violence or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Again, he's talking not to Roman soldiers, but Jewish conscripts. And when he's telling them not to rob anyone by violence or by some false accusation, what he's telling them is you are given responsibility. You are given power. And this power has been given to you by the authority of that day, the Romans. And if you misuse that, if you use that to build yourself up, gain wages from others and rob them violently or accuse them so that way you can then slide in and steal all of their possessions, well, you're in this place of not only forsaking yourself, but you're forsaking your brother. You're forsaking your sister. Because these people, again, are not outsiders. These are people within that familial unit of the children of Israel. So moving on to verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all men questioned in their hearts concerning John, whether perhaps he was the Christ, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the people are in anticipation for the coming Christ. Again, we need to understand this Christ as the military savior who's going to come in and liberate the people from the Roman oppressors. And they hear John proclaiming all of these prophetic words. And it said that they question in their hearts whether perhaps he were the Christ. How is it that John is hearing the questionings that these people are making in their hearts? Well, it's through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You have a very similar phraseology that's used by Christ when you hear grumblings around him and all of a sudden he'll answer questions that people never actually vocalized. And we see this prophetic example of John. Because in his answer, he says that I will baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. 
So he's identifying that, yes, the preparation that we are doing here through my baptism is important, but yet there's something even greater on the horizon. And here he continues to make this comparison because he says that the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So what he's saying here is, well, the role of the lowest servant within a king's court would be to tie the sandal of the king. Yet St. John is saying here that he's not even worthy of doing that. He's not even worthy of stooping down to this lowly place to tie the sandal of the Lord. And the reason for that is that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. So we see that the baptism with which Christ is going to offer us, the baptism that we will see within the Acts of the Apostles, is different. The Holy Spirit will descend upon us in the same way that in a couple of verses we will see the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ in bodily form. And again, this experience of us experiencing God will be equated to a fire, will be equated to a light. There's a reason, this is a reason, why Christ, the Logos, is constantly referred to as light, as fire, as purity. It's because in his purity, in his perfection, this is our experience of that perfection. It is a blinding light. It is something that we cannot even fathom. And we see here in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. So a winnowing fork is a kind of pitchfork, a fan-like pitchfork that's used to collect um, various grain, so wheat. And what it does is it separates the wheat from the chaff. So the wheat from everything around the wheat, all of the waste that you're not going to use to make your grain, to make your meal. And we see here that he's gathering all of his wheat into a granary. That is, he's welcoming all those who are preparing the way for the Lord into the messianic kingdom that is to come. And yet, if we shirk off the responsibility, as I mentioned earlier, that comes along with us being participants in that kingdom, we will be equated to chaff. We will be equated to this sheath, if you will, of the true grain. And the natural result of that is being burnt away in unquenchable fire. I must stress time and time again because of the Western perception that we have of heaven and hell, that where we see this talk of fire, this talk of burning, we're not talking about a physical place. We're not talking about some place down under the earth that we all go to where demons with pitchforks are going to be stabbing at us for eternity. Rather, we're talking about the experience that we will all have in the resurrection. Because all of us, body and soul, as we believe, will be resurrected in Christ. The Protestants aren't wrong that believe in a universal salvation, a universal resurrection, in the sense that, yes, we are all going to be reunited body and soul. But the difference that we believe is that if we are not doing the work in this life of preparing ourselves for that salvation, for that resurrection, well then, when we are face to face with God, when that veil is no longer in front of us, well, how are we going to experience his light? 
it's going to be a burning fire. It's going to be an endless torment. And it's not because Christ is sitting there wanting to judge us. It's not because Christ is sitting there wanting to torture us for eternity. But it's because we didn't put the work in. We didn't ally ourselves with the Lord. And so when we're finally welcomed into his kingdom, that kingdom will be an eternal hellfire, or at least we will perceive it and such. Or, if we've put the work in, if we've humbled ourselves, and Lord knows when that ends. That might even be something that we can still do in repentance and humility, even after we pass away. Only God can know. But the reality is, when we are confronted with the Lord, when we prepare ourselves to live this life in Him, then we will experience that eternal life as eternal joy. But if we don't put that work in, well, this is what St. John is speaking of, this experience of the resurrection. So moving on to verse 18. So with many other exhortions, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he shut up John in prison. So we see here before the baptism of Christ, the narrative of St. John's ministry come to a close. And Yes, we know within our tradition that St. John is the one who baptizes Christ, but as we're going to see in verse 21 through 22, it's not very explicit that it is John. Um, And the reason for that isn't because St. Luke is telling us, okay, yeah, no, John did not baptize Jesus. John is the Baptist. He specifically refers to John as the Baptist. But the reason why St. Luke ends Christ's story, uh, rather, St. John's story, before Christ's ministry begins, before his baptism, is because that's part of his ministry as forerunner. He is preparing the way of the Lord. So narratively speaking, when his narrative comes to a close, when Herod the Tetrarch locks him up in prison because of his reproofs of him taking Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, as his own, well, what we see here is a capstone to the narrative of St. John. His work has been done. It's for that reason, moving on to verse 21, we hear, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove, and a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. So we see in verse 21, Now when all of the people were baptized, there's been a fulfillment. All of the people who were coming out to be baptized for this preparation have been baptized, and Jesus is the last one. Jesus is the one who comes and fills this baptism, as promised, to its full. Then we see Jesus being baptized. The ministry of John has clearly ended, because the Baptist is now locked away. 
but it's not Herod's fault, in a sense, that this ministry is over. Rather, the ministry is naturally ended because the Christ has arrived. And the proclamation that the Christ has arrived is that while Jesus is praying, which is a common motif that we will see within the gospel according to St. Luke, the heaven was open. Now, the difference that we see here with the word open being used compared to, I believe, both Mark and possibly Matthew, is that we hear in Matthew and Mark, the heavens were ripped asunder. The heavens were torn open in a violent manner. And yet what we see here is that the heaven was open and the spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove, and the voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. So in this opening of the heavens, we see a descent take place, a descent that can hypothetically be seen. That's why the Spirit is identified as being seen in bodily form. If we remember all the way back to the Gospel according to St. Mark, the way that Mark frames the theophany, this revelation of God as Trinity, is a vision that only Christ can see. And within other gospel accounts, you'll see that John sees this revelation. Yet it's very vague here. Who's seeing this opening of the heaven and spirit descending upon Christ bodily in the form of a dove? Well, it's left up to the reader. It's us. We are seeing this. And just something to add to your toolkit whenever you hear people say that Trinitarian theology is a later intervention within the church. Well, you have to look at the Theophany account within all four Gospels. It's very rare that all four Gospels agree on something. It's very rare that all four Gospels have the same narrative account. And yet we hear... Well, first, we saw this in the chapter with that proclamation of Isaiah. The announcement that St. John is the one making the path straight for the Lord is an announcement that's made at the beginning of all four Gospels, or at least for Luke here in the third chapter. And another common element is the Theophany, this revelation of God as Trinity, because we see the person of Christ being baptized, we see the Spirit descending upon him, showing that the Spirit is always there, because it's through the Spirit that Christ does his good works. It's through the Spirit that God the Father shares this love with the Son. And yet we also hear the voice of the Father made manifest, where he says, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. This is not the Superman narrative that we often think about when we look back to Jesus. Oh, he slowly came into his own, discovered he was the Son of God, and uh, that's kind of how all of this played out. I know all too often we can fall into the temptation to kind of romanticize or anthropomorphize, if that's the right way of putting it, this narrative of Christ. But we need to realize that Christ, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. 
We talked about this at the end of the last chapter when he grows in both stature and wisdom. He shows the signs that are appropriate of someone of his stature, someone of his age. And yet he retains that divinity throughout his entire life, throughout his entire ministry. So when we see this theophany, when we see the Spirit falling upon Christ, descending upon Christ, rather, and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased, this is not Jesus receiving this information for the first time. Rather, this is the beginning of his earthly ministry, and it's being sealed with this proclamation for us, the reader, to fully understand who he is. And this will be hammered home now in the final section of this gospel account when St. Luke gives us both the beginning of his ministry and a very long genealogy. For all of you sitting here and listening live and listening at home, my apologies for my dyslexic brain trying to go through 78 names, but we're going to do the best that we can here. So beginning in verse 23... Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Malachi, the son of Jehonani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Mathat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Shemai, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Johanan, the son of Rehas, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shreltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Malachi, the son of Adai, the son of Cosmum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikem, the son of Meliel, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nershon, the son of Anemadad, the son of Adnan, the son of Arnai, the son of Herzron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nor, the son of Sirig, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So thank you all for suffering there with me through that account. Now, we might be asking ourselves, why is it that St. Luke, here at the end of the third chapter, gives us his list of 73 names, 78 names, rather? Well, 
we see that Jesus' ministry here in verse 23 has begun. And we have, again, his age. This is 30 years after his birth. So at the age of 30, the age of full maturity is, I believe, your brain development for men, that is, is finally finished, roughly speaking, around age 28 or 29. Um, So what we see here is an identification that Jesus is of this age of maturity. Jesus has made it to the stature of a true adult, if you will. And as his ministry is beginning, we hear that he begins as the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And from Joseph, we see this lineage go in reverse order all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Well, we might be asking ourselves, if Christ... Jesus is the son of God. Well, why does this lineage even exist? What's going on here? (laughs) What's the purpose of all of these names? And the purpose seems to be, at least from Luke's context, to show us how salvation history has been playing out since the very beginning. At the very end of these 78 names, we see Adam who is the first, well, the the son of God. And St. Cyril of Alexandria will say that the reason why this lineage exists the way that does is because if anyone is questioning the divinity of Christ, the possibility of Jesus being the only begotten son of God, well then, they have to look no further than humanity being started from the hands of God, from the breath of God, as he breathes his spirit into us, humanity, in the very beginning. And yet, even though Adam fell away, all the way at the end of the 78 names, we see that through these generations, God's saving works have been coming to a head. And ultimately, those saving works will be manifest when he comes to his Christ, when he comes to Jesus, because Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is this fulfillment of the promise of salvation that was to come. So this is the reason why we have this lineage. It's not just a bunch of names that are thrown down in the middle of this text, well, the end of this text that are there to confuse us and have us glaze over. Besides the first 36 names within this list, we see, starting from Zerubbabel, these names being pulled from the book of Chronicles. So 1 Chronicles chapters 1 through 3. We see this lineage of people being identified, and each of those people within the books of kingdoms has a story. They have something that they did. And we go all the way to Abraham, and we see the list pick up in Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 11. So we have this through line of people who did great works, or some not so great works, reaching all the way back to God, reaching all the way back through Adam. And all of this is to show us that even though humanity is flawed, even though humanity has fallen away, 
God has always been there all along, preparing the way for his Christ. And now that the time is proper and right for the Christ to begin his ministry, St. Luke hammers the point home. He says that salvation is here. If you didn't get it when you heard back in chapter 1 that a virgin was going to give birth to this child and his name was going to be Jesus, and if you didn't get it when we saw this theophany, this revelation of Christ's divinity, with him being one with the Father and the Spirit, well then maybe you're going to understand it now, because here's practically how it's been playing out. Again, lineages are very loose. You can become somebody's father through the role of being a father. And it's for that reason that the lineage goes through Joseph that we see here. People later on will try to make some arguments that this lineage is through Mary, but if that was the case, then why would St. Luke identify Joseph here? The reality is that Christ's lineage through Joseph stretches all the way back to God, and that's the ultimate message that St. Luke is trying to hammer home for us. Is this message is a message of hope. This message is a message of expressing the reality that has now come in the Messiah. And moving on through the rest of the gospel according to St. Luke, we will see a more traditional understanding, at least traditional from our experiences with the gospels typically, of who Jesus is, what his ministry looks like, and ultimately how it's made manifest. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. And until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner Give us strength as we all set out to draw near the Christ and make his path straight. Amen.